Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We've got a great show today. We've got Jack Bobo, and he's the author of Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. And this exposes the not so obvious but real drivers of our complicated relationship to the foods that we eat and why it's proven so hard to change our habits. Jack is also the CEO of Futurity, a food foresight company that advises companies, foundations, and governments on emerging food trends and consumer attitudes and behaviors related to the future of food. Uh, he's been recognized by Scientific American as one of the 100 most influential people in biotechnology. Jack is a global thought leader who has delivered more than 500 speeches in 50 countries on food technology and policy. He's an interesting mix. He's an attorney with a scientific background. Jack received from Indiana University a JD, an MS in environmental science, a BS in biology, and a BA in psychology and chemistry. Jack, thanks so much for being with me today. Well, it's really a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, and, and I'm so, the relationship that we have with food is so interesting to me because I have, a, in, at the Brain Performance Center, I work with a lot of people with anxiety and depression, and food can be, uh, it can be a comfort, it can be a support system, and usually when it fills those roles, it's not in such a healthy way. Yeah, Absolutely. And really, that's what the book is about, you know, where we are today, how we got here, and what it would take to get us back to a place where we had a healthier relationship with food, where our environment was delivering healthy outcomes every day and not the challenging ones we find ourselves in. Well, you know, and I get asked all the time, well, why do I eat so much at night? Why do I eat so much sugar? Why do I eat so much salt? You know, what part of the brain controls that? And I can only answer that the amygdala, amygdala controls the brain, the food choices we make, and the amygdala is the emotional center of the brain. Yeah, absolutely. But there's also so much more psychology and environmental factors that are influencing that as well, because you know that's sort of the basis of where those decisions are being made. But we're shaped by so much more. Oh, absolutely. And you know how stressed out you are, how tired you are. Are you sad? You know, um, all of that impacts how you eat and what you eat. Yeah, definitely. Well, what do you think? I mean, talk to us. Tell us you've got a, a much more global authority on food. And, you know, where does it start? Where do we start making these bad choices? Yeah, so let me take you from the individual, which is what you were talking about, but to the societal and global level. Um, in the United States today, 42% of all Americans are obese and 75% are overweight or obese. And if we continue on the same trend we're on today, it'll be 50% in just 10 years. And this is not just a problem here in the United States, but really every corner of the world is following right behind us. Obesity rates are skyrocketing everywhere. So this is definitely a global challenge. And so people shouldn't feel alone in this. Uh, it's, it's something we're all experiencing. And part of it is that we're at this really unique moment in time 
for 10,000 years, farmers have been asked to produce more food. And now we're at that one moment where they're asked to be produce not just more, but better food, food that's better for people and better for the planet. And so how we got here, though, is just really an interesting story. You know, if we went back to just 1970, 1975, obesity rates in America were actually lower than in many parts of Europe. So the problems we see today have not really been with us all that long, you know, really just a, a generation or two. And, you know, I like to say that in many ways, it's supersizing has had sort of an outsized impact on us. And we think of it as so common today, but the idea of supersizing can be traced back to the mad genius of one man, and that's David Wallerstein. Back in the 1960s, he was being asked to sell more popcorn. He was working for a chain of movie theaters, and he just couldn't convince people to go back for a second bag of popcorn, no matter what he tried. And it finally occurred to him, what if the reason people won't go back for more popcorn is because they're embarrassed. You know, they might look gluttonous if they went back for a second bag. And so then it dawned on him, well, let, why not offer a bigger bag? It seems so obvious today, and yet it was this real breakthrough at the time. And immediately, not only did popcorn sales take off, but soda sales and all sorts of things at the concession stands. Well, David went on to work for McDonald's, and he eventually conv convinced Ray Kroc that he should introduce the large size of French fries. That didn't happen until 1972, but you know it really kicked off this you know wave of um, you know supersized food that we have today. And what's surprising is we don't even know what a normal serving size looks like anymore, because you know if we continue to use McDonald's as an example. In 1955, a regular soda was about seven or eight ounces. And the small fries that we eat today was a large fry from 1972. So, you know, it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around how little an adult was eating in 1955 compared to what we're eating today. Wow. That's, you know, that's a, the quantity is always, we've always known that's important. But to make it, to make it where, you know, I want to supersize. I want the, the best value. And when I'm not getting this best value, actually, I'm getting a, a bad value. I mean, the, the food, everything, healthy eating is essential for your memory, your mood and your focus. And the brain uses 20% of, of what we eat. And if we're eating supersized of French fries, you know, where's the nutritional psychiatry behind that? Yeah, no, Absolutely. You know, we're eating you know, 50 to 100 percent more food than we might have if we had gone to McDonald's back in 1955. And so, you know, it's just not surprising at all that it's having an impact on our waistlines. Well, and our brain, too. I mean, I think yeah. I know that when I eat unhealthy, I'll get brain fog. I'll have a hard time concentrating. I'll feel like oh, I can, you know, I can't stay on task. I can't finish what I start. Yeah. Just want to lie down and uh, try to suffer through it until you can digest some of that food. You do. And I mean, and our brain is always on. And so we got to fuel it. And if the fuel that you're giving your brain, of course, it comes from what you eat. And if you're fueling that with sugar or with too much salt or just all processed food, how well do you think that your brain is going to function? And what's it doing to the structure of your brain? Yeah, no, all of those things are true. And in the first third of the book, I really look at the cognitive psychology of the things that are driving our behaviors. And, 
you know, a lot of that arose uh, because of some of the efforts that were made to improve our diet. You know, the dietary guidelines were established back in the late 70s and the early 80s. And the goal was to reduce uh, intake of fats in our food. And the food companies responded, you know, really as one would have hoped that they would do by providing all of these low fat products. The problem is, again, the psychology of the brain. If we think that a cookie is low fat, well, if that, a low fat cookie is good for me, a whole bag of low fat cookies must be great. <laughs> and, and it just gave people permission. Uh, and, you know, that's the halo effect that, you know, if something has one good quality, it must have all good qualities. So low in fat makes people believe it's also uh, low in sugar and high in nutrition and other nutrients and other things. And so our brains actually kind of working against us, um, you know, in some of the efforts that regulators are making and even food companies that are driving some of these bad choices. Well, you know, so we know it's easy to make bad choices. How do you make good choices? Well, the first is, you know, to recognize some of the psychology so that the halo effect is there. You know, if we know that the word natural leads us to think something is good, even though natural is not really defined in any way, then we'll be a little bit more on guard against it. Um, but also things like uh, mental fatigue. You know, at the end of a long day, you know, you've often heard that you shouldn't go grocery shopping because you'll take more snacks. And so we know mental fatigue leads to poor choices. Decision fatigue is a subset of uh, mental fatigue, which just means the more choices or decisions you have to make, the worse the decisions become. And can you imagine a place that is you know, more fraught with decisions than the grocery store aisles? You know, we're literally making thousands of decisions about what food products to eat, and we're often doing it at the end of that long day. And so it's not at all surprising that it becomes hard for people to make good choices and on top of that, a grocery store today has tens of thousands of more products than a grocery store of 1980. So, you know, and, you know, we're all busier than we ever were. And so there are all of these things that are conspiring. And so some of the things you can do is, well, have a list of things that you intend to buy and buy only those things on your list. Uh, so we can begin to guard against it or we can do our shopping earlier in the day or do it in the weekend when we're not quite so tired. So that's where we can begin to reshape our, you know, behaviors because we understand a little more about the psychology. Well, you know, talking about the psychology, we all have favorite foods. And I know some people, those, you know, I'm just not going to have any of my favorite foods. And then what happens is they end up binging on their favorite foods. So do you recommend that we don't, that we do and eat our favorite foods and include that in our normal diet? Absolutely. I mean, think about it. You know, we know more about health and nutrition than we ever have in the history of the planet, and we've never been more obese. In 1960, nobody knew anything about nutrition. They were cooking with lard and Crisco, and, uh, and yet they weren't obese, and they were not avoiding their favorite foods in any way. So if we can reshape our food environment, we actually will be able to eat pretty much anything we want we won't be thinking about calories and all of these things all the time. And we'll find that just as we gained one or two or three pounds a year for the last 20 years, we will lose one or two or three pounds a year for the next 20 years. And we won't even be able to pinpoint why it's happening. That's the goal of the book is how do we, you know, 
reshape that environment so that you know we just are losing a little bit because we're eating a little bit healthier every single day. Well, and I know that some people have trigger foods. I, I have to be honest, chips and salsa, boy, once I start, I just, I have a hard time not overeating. So people that do have trigger foods, uh, does it, what advice do you have for them? I mean, I always suggest, well, know what your triggers are and avoid them. And don't even, for me, just don't start. Because if I don't start, I'm fine. <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, if there are certain things that you know you're going to overindulge in no matter what, then, you know, ideally you you won't purchase them. But, you know, if you do purchase them, you know, maybe you don't leave them on the countertop. You put them in the cupboard because, you know, if you have the, the cookies sitting on the countertop, you can walk past them five times. But, you know, on the sixth time, if you stop, then, you know, it doesn't really matter that you have, you know, you've strained your willpower and you've tired yourself mentally by avoiding it. And then you're going to give in even more than if you had just eaten the cookie, you know, when you're vaguely hungry. So understanding, you know, how these things are tempting us. But a lot of it is just, it, it's not just what's happening in the home. You know, that's part of the problem. But we we need to address the challenge, you know, more broadly in society. You know, many people have heard that, you know, you should eat off smaller dinner plates or, you know, a salad plate. And, you know, that makes some sense because a dinner plate today is maybe 10, 11, or 12 inches in diameter the average dinner plate in 1960 was only nine inches. And that's about the size of a salad plate today. So wow. absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, you know, we don't even recognize, you know, what a normal plate size should look like. And that's why if you ever go to an estate sale or a yard sale and you see these old dishes, you're like, you know, where are the dinner plates? And it's like, no, no, that that's it. <laughs> uh, but the problem is that if you eat off that smaller plate at home, and then you go to a restaurant and you see these enormous plates, they're even bigger than the ones that we have at home, they're 12, 13 inches or more, then your brain believes that the bigger plate is the norm. And so then when you're eating at home, it does, it's not as good as if it was consistent. And so the, you know, part of what would be nice is if we could convince restaurants and other places that, you know, let's go back to a nine inch standard you know, not forcing people to do it, but doing it because it's sort of in all of our interest. And I just give you one one story. I went to the Cheesecake Factory with my family a few years ago for Father's Day, and I wanted to teach my kids about portion size. And, you know, Cheesecake Factory is known for giving good por- good size portions. And so I ordered the steak, mashed potatoes, and green beans. And when the plate arrived, I have to say I was a little bit disappointed because it wasn't like so much, it wasn't overflowing with food. And I'm thinking, oh, shoot, I can actually eat all of this. And so I didn't think it was going to create the right lesson. Fortunately, I pulled a nine-inch plate out of my wife's purse, and I replated the food. And when I did that, it was obvious that it was actually two full adult servings of food. In other words, it would fill fill that nine-inch plate twice. Wow. And that's what was shocking to me. It's like somebody who is very much aware of that challenge was tricked. By the plate. And so I took out a tape measure, which I also brought. The plate was 15 inches wide and 12 inches deep. And so that's pretty anybody, shocking. It is. And, you know, so if they, if you eat two meals for the price of one, that is not good value. 
On the other hand, if I had gotten two meals and taken one of them home for the price of one, that's fantastic value. So it's not about blaming the restaurant for giving me two meals for the price of one, but if they would just make it easier for me to eat one meal and take one meal home, we would all be better off. Absolutely. You know, and and I mean, there are things like your blood sugar levels. There's so much that people will talk about when, with their diet. Well, I have to stabilize my blood sugar levels. And, you know, so does that make it okay to eat white bread and cookies and candies? Um, I don't I don't it, know the answer when, to that. Right. Well, you know, I think, you know, we do know a lot about nutrition and, you know, we, it's not about sort of ignoring the advice that we have, but, you know, it's, it's about recognizing that uh, if you like bread, well, many restaurants today will just give you an unlimited, you know, a bottomless ba- uh, you know, bag of bread so you can eat more than you would have 20 years ago. Or, you know, because the amount of pasta you're getting is so much more than you would have gotten or the amount of rice or other things. And so you shouldn't have to struggle so hard in order to eat, you know, eat right. And one of the ways the brain also misleads us is that, you know, many of us who are aware of portion sizes might put, you know, only eat half the meal and then take the other half home. The problem is our brain is ahead of us here because our brain is thinking, oh, you didn't finish your meal because we took part of it home. And it never kicks in and says it's time to start digesting and, you know, ramp up burning of calories because it doesn't think we finished our food. And so that's part of the reason why what we really need to do is be able to say, I want my to-go bag before you serve me my food so that I only am served the food I'm going to eat. And then we, you know, if you want to dip into the bag and get a little more food, you always can. But we know psychology, it's very unlikely somebody's like going to open up that package and get another half of the steak out. That's just not going to happen. Well, you make a really good point there. And, and there's some simple things that we can do. I mean, I've what I've tried to do sometimes is I'll slow down. When I overeat, I'm on the run. I eat too quickly. And when I slow down, I take my time. I really chew my food. I, you know, I feel like I'm more full. Um, and and I, I usually eat less. Right. And you enjoy the experience more. Absolutely. Well, so many restaurants, you know, uh, and restaurants give us a lot of food because people come back to the restaurants that give them a lot of food. So, you know, this isn't really about demonizing the restaurant industry, but we as, you know, citizens or consumers need to give them better guidance that, you know, we will reward restaurants that make it easy for us to take food home or that serve us the food and they will bring more if we want it, um, you know, give you the bottomless uh, bowl of vegetables instead of the bottomless bowl of bread, you know, perhaps. Yeah, and, that's a great idea. You know, you can redesign a menu so that it actually encourages the healthier food choice. You can rename food products so that people are more tempted by the Cuban black bean soup instead of the low fat soup, right? It's the same soup, but you know, one is enticing. The other is, Oh, I'm going to hate this. Well, you're right. Because anytime, you know, who wants the low fat that as soon as you say, okay, Lee, I'm going to give you the low fat, the healthiest thing there is. It's natural for me to go, Oh, 
well, I kind of wanted something special. Right. Well, in psychology, it's so crazy. You know, not only do you want to avoid that product because it's healthy, but if you eat it, you actually will experience it as being less tasty. So like if I give you a bowl of Cuban black bean soup and then I give you a bowl of low fat black bean soup and, you know, have people taste and then rate the quality of the product, people eating the Cuban black bean soup will just enjoy it more. And so our experience of the food is actually shaped by our expectation. So not just what's in it, but what we think about what's in it. You are exactly right. You know, sometimes it's how we set our expectations that if you tell me you are going to have the best meal you have ever had and it's all natural and it's all healthy, my expectations are I'm really going to enjoy that. And if you reverse that and you say you're going to have the, the healthiest meal you've ever had first, then I don't have the same expectation. Yeah, absolutely. I think my my favorite research article, and we should all have a favorite research article, is one called Mind Over Milkshakes. And in it, the, the researcher does exactly this. She uh, gives people a milkshake, and it's either labeled as indulgent or low-fat. And not only do people enjoy the one labeled indulgent more, even though they're the same, our body chemistry responds as if we got the shake that we think we ate. In other words, we get we have this feeling of fullness from the indulgent one um, that we don't get from the low fat, like our body starts producing the ghrelin and other things as if it's like had this big meal. So it's not just in our minds, but our bodies are responding as well. Well, that's interesting, you know, because I always think that in my world, the brain controls everything, um, but the body has a, a beat of its own. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, what do you think about, have you ever suggested that somebody keep a food journal just to help them really understand what they're eating? Well, I, I think things like that are, are definitely helpful. Uh, in some ways, though, the point of the book is to step one, to get one step removed from the individual and say, what can we as society do to reshape the layout of the grocery store, uh, you know, the restaurant menus, the food cafeteria, you know, how food is laid out, all of these things that then make it easier for you to do what it is that you want to do. So we can work as individuals, but we should also be advocating for these societal changes that will reinforce our better, be our better angels, so to speak. Well, and I could definitely see corporations having an interest in what they see, serve in their cafeteria because, you know, you want to energize your the people that work with you and you want them to go back after their lunch and, and feel ready to take on the rest of the day, not go back and, and figure out, oh, I can't quit yawning. How am I going to make it to five o'clock? Yep, absolutely. And uh, one of the companies that I feature in the book is Google, and they have just done an enormous amount of research on this, you know, trying different food titles and order of the food and the the check the lines, and they give away all the food. So, you know, if you're giving away five-star Michelin-type food, you know, you need to work really hard to make sure people don't overindulge. That's really interesting. So they, they it sounds like they put a lot of intent and with a lot of being very deliberate about what they feed their people. 
Yeah, they have. I mean, in their, before COVID, they were feeding about 200,000 people one, two, or three meals a day, all of it free, including all the snacks and sodas and drinks and other things they could consume. And so examples of what they would do is they, instead of, they still offer soda, but instead of just having it clearly available, they put it behind frosted glass in a lower refri- refrigerator. They still give away M&Ms, but they're in opaque containers. Um, they still have a snack station, but they separated it from the coffee station. So people are less likely to just sort of drift over and grab some snacks while they're waiting for coffee. So all these little nudges to just help people be a little bit better at uh, what they choose. Are they measuring that? Are they are they interested in how they're changing? What's changing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is what Google does best. So they're crunching all of that data saying if we move the you know, the thing just or the snacks just 16 feet away, we can get this, you know, 10, 15 percent reduction in snacking. So, yeah, they're they're crunching all of that information and then they're re- using it to redesign. And then they're sharing it with other companies like Compass Group, which then works with hospitals and schools and others to uh, implement those ideas. You know, it, it makes so much sense, because if I have to walk a far enough distance that I'm really that I have time to think, do I really want those M&Ms? I'll probably come up with the answer, no, I really don't. But if they're right there and I just reach out and grab them, yeah, that, I mean, that's too easy. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you can see them on the jar on a table, you might just grab a couple. But if they were in an opaque container, you know they're there, but they just don't call to you. Oh, that bright red and that blue. I love the blue M&M's. <laughs> Right. Well, they also have shown that like the more diversity of color of, you know, M&Ms, the more likely you are to take more, even though, of course, they all taste the same. So they only offer one color at a time in order to, uh, you know, again, discourage people from taking bigger portions. Really? So if you dip if you dip into the jar today, you're only going to get yellow. That's right. Or red or whatever it might be. (laughs) I love that. I wrote that's such a unique but such a simple thing to do. Yep. You just have to nudge one or two or three fewer M&Ms and you've actually made a little bit of a difference in people's health. Oh, I can, I can hold 10 in a handful easy. <laughs> I mean, easy. Well, they provide a little cup that's, you know, a, a certain size to, um, you know, again, keep people from overindulging with, a, you know, with this, each scoop. So did they explain or did they just very subtly make these changes or did they you know they tell people this is what we're doing yeah so people are definitely aware of it they're not making a big deal of it because you know sometimes people react negatively to all of that um like when they tried to go to a meatless monday that just did not work (laughs) they had people (laughs) protesting in the uh in the parking lot um but for the most part you know people are now eating kale salads for breakfast and you know have it's actually become part of their you know daily routine um, and many of the people, you know, have expressed shock that they're the ones that are eating so healthy compared to where they were, you know, years ago. Well, you know, and think about it. To me, that's a real benefit of working there is they're concerned about my health. They want me to be healthy. I think that is an excellent strategy. Yeah. Well, and that's what the book closes with, you know, the ideas of what are the things, how can we bring all these threads and different ideas together in order to reshape society so that the healthy choice is the easy choice? Well, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, um, Jack's got a lot more to share with us about the, the lifestyle choices that we can make and how that can help us. We'll be back after these messages. 
Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting Magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Recently, during a football game between the San Francisco 49ers and the Los Angeles Rams, a spectator decided to run out onto the field. Game announcer Kevin Harlan treated the event like any other down and started calling the play-by-play as the Ken Speckled fan ran wildly up and down the field with security trying to tackle him. But people aren't the only ones causing high tantrabogus interruptions of professional sports matches. In Queensland, Australia, an adorable koala ran onto the field in the middle of a soccer match. But when a four-year-old took a wrong turn during a Legends charity football game and found himself on the field, without missing a beat, the players tossed the ball to the kid and let him run the length of the field for a score. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. Yeah, we're back. And over the break, I was talking with Jack and I was saying, wow, you know, is Google the only company that's doing something like this? I think it's such a fabulous strategy to help keep your your employees healthy and, and let them know you care about them. So talk to us more, Jack. What's going on in the world with this? Yeah, so a lot of different organizations and companies have gotten the memo that uh, they are responsible in many ways for the health of their employees. And a couple ways this is happening. One is that, you know, Google, they feed 200,000 people, you know, one, two or three meals a day. The company that's providing most of that food is a company called Compass Group, which is also one of the largest, you know, food service companies in the world. And so they're taking the ideas that are being developed at Google, and then they're employing them at the corporate cafeterias, the hospitals, and the schools that they operate around the world. Uh, you also have large companies like Sodexo that are trying to find ways of helping uh, the people that they work with to, to lead healthier lives. So there's definitely a lot happening there. But you also have other industries that are working on this. Uh, the Collaboration for Healthier Lives in the UK has brought together the different grocery store uh, sector in the UK. And what they did is they began to redesign the grocery stores to see if they could, again, nudge people for healthier choices. And what they found is that just really by redesigning the grocery store, they were able to increase purchases of fruits and vegetables by 13% over the course of the first year of the program. So, you know, that's pretty meaningful. And, you know, people didn't even know that it was happening. You know, they're just 
ended up buying more fruits and vegetables and, you know, probably would have had no inkling that, you know, this was actually intentional. And so what's exciting for me is that, you know, you have companies that are doing this, you have, uh, you have food sectors like uh, the uh, grocery stores, retailers that are doing it. But then you also have communities that have bought into this idea. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Blue Zones, uh, but Dan Butner uh, was a National Geographic explorer who really came upon this idea that there are certain communities around the world where people tended to live the longest. And he went and did a lot of research to try to understand, you know, what is it about these unique communities um, that's leading them to the healthier um, lives, you know, people that where they have the most people who live 100 or longer and are healthy. And a lot of it has to do with the type of food you're eating, but, you know, how you move, your relationships with people. And, you know, that's all about community and environment. And so, you know, what I saw and what I talk about in my book is how all of these different threads seem to be coming together at the company level, the food sector level, the community level. And we really just need to bring them together now at the societal level so we can scale these ideas so they can benefit everyone. I'm just so happy to hear that that type of thinking is going on. Yeah, it, it's it, it's really interesting. Um, under the Obama administration, there was the behavioral insights team that was part of the White House, and they were using the ideas of behavioral science to try to nudge people uh, to better outcomes. A lot of this came out of the work or the book Nudge by uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And Cass Sunstein then went on to work for the uh, Obama administration and set up this insights team. And it's all about how do you encourage people to do the thing they actually want to do without limiting choice. And a, a, classic, a classical example of um, behavioral insights is that you know, when you go to sign up for your 401k, if you were to do it today, what you'd find is by default, you were a member of the 401k program. You can opt out, but that requires a lot of paperwork and most people just won't do it. You know, 10 years ago, if you started a, comp a new job, you had to fill out tons of paperwork to join the 401k program. And of course, that you know, it was a huge barrier for many people because you know, if you don't do it the day you start, you're just likely not to do it at all. And so that default, you know, is, is the default being part of the program or is the default being you know, not a part of the program is really powerful at influencing you know, what we do. Well, do you see more of this in the future? I mean, I know that that you work on a global level and, and are looking towards the future and how the changes that we can make. Do you see them coming? I do. I do. I, and I'm really hoping that more of them will be applied at the, the policy level and in communities. You know, when I look around right now, I, I see a lot of momentum behind things like soda taxes and you know, I find soda taxes a little bit challenging because one, soda consumption's at a 30-year low and obesity's at a 30-year high, so I'm not sure it's where we should be focusing our energy. But there's also just the idea that people who drink soda hate taxes, people who make soda hate taxes, and so it really creates a lot of tension when you're trying to pass a soda tax. But a behavioral intervention, sort of human, using human psychology, what if we could convince restaurants that give out free refills to use a 12 ounce cup as the default, as opposed to, you know, using Subway as an example, the 21 ounce cup they would normally give you. 
Well, you know, most people will get a cup, drink it, and then get a half a cup and leave. So the difference between getting a 12 and a 21 ounce cup is about 12 ounces. So just changing the default cup size could reduce, uh, you know, 150 calories per person. Well, Subway, that's 7 million people a day. That would be a billion calories could be reduced every single day by a simple intervention that didn't force anybody to do anything. They can go back as often as they want. We just know they won't. And every restaurant gives out, uh, makes more money because they give away less soda. So that's a difference between sort of working with human psychology as opposed to sort of fighting human psychology. Do you get any, do you hear resistance when you share that type of thinking? Well, I think, you know, certainly there are more people that are uh, invested in, you know, tax programs and things like that. The idea of using these nudges uh, is, you know, it's really just beginning to take hold. Personally, I believe, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, this is going to be what most organizations turn to first, you know, just because you can implement it with by just engaging with the local restaurant community in a state. You know, you might be able to convince them just to swap out the cup and give it a try, whereas you're not going to convince them to tax, you know, the, uh, you know, the soda or to, you know, ban the small, the larger cup. You know, those types of things just automatically create resistance and pushback. So I think people need to see some of these ideas work in practice. And, you know, that's where the work that Google is doing and that's happening with the Blue Zones project. And there's another similar project called Wellville, which is five communities in America where they're, they're doing these behavioral interventions to try to improve health outcomes. That's led by Esther Dyson, the uh, futurist and entrepreneur, and she actually wrote the uh, the forward for my book. And so I'm hoping that we'll be able to take some of those lessons and convince people that these nudges are absolutely what we need to make communities happier and healthier. Well, you know, you've talked about making these changes on the societal level. Do you think the government needs to get involved with this? Well, I think they need to uh, support these types of ideas and also research into them because there's, they would be so much cheaper than many of the things that we're, we're trying to do today. And they're, you know, they're, they're very little risk of them having a negative impact, but something like a soda tax, well, that's a regressive tax. And, you know, it, so it hits the poorest people the hardest. And, you know, maybe if they stop drinking soda, then they don't feel the economic impact. But if they choose to keep drinking, then they actually have less money for healthy food. And so we, we definitely need to think through the, uh, the implications of policy interventions and, you know, who benefits and who might be hurt. Well, you know, and I hate to say it, but for so many businesses, it all comes down to money. You know, it comes down to their profit statement. And if they can, if they can feel like they're going to become more profitable by doing these things, they'll be, they'll do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and it's not just profitable. I, I think most restaurants would like people to have healthy outcomes and they want people to be healthier. But, you know, the reality is that the cost of the food for most restaurants is not the single biggest driver of, you know, the economics of running a restaurant. It's labor and real estate. And so if people want a lot of food that they're going to throw away, they're willing to do it in order to get them in the door. But 
if they could find a way that people didn't throw the food away or that, you know, they chose to eat smaller portions and they, they made the same amount of money, I don't know why they wouldn't do it. And, you know, an example of that would be just working with the hotel industry. You know, if you've ever gone to, for, to breakfast at a hotel, you know, there are a couple of different types of glasses that they offer. One is sort of the, the short, wide glass, and then sometimes they give you the tall, skinny glass. Well, we actually pour a lot more liquid into short, wide glasses than we pour into the tall, skinny one. And so just by changing the shape of the glass, you can reduce by a few calories what every person takes. Now, most restaurants are choosing the glasses for aesthetic purposes, not because they're trying to nudge people towards healthier outcomes. And so most restaurants and most uh, hotels don't really care about the shape of the glass. And so if they knew there was something they could do to make their you know, visitors healthier, uh, I, I guess I'm optimistic. I believe that they would. Well, you know, and when you, for breakfast, most hotels, the buffets, and I think that makes me think, well, that, you know, it certainly costs less when you don't have have staff to serve, um, but the buffets are danger zones. <laughs> they certainly can be. And, you know, they have a buffet set up, though, at Google. And the way they set it up is that, you know, the healthiest food is at the front of the line. They're obviously taking care of the size of the plate. And instead of offering five types of dessert, they'll offer maybe one or two and then they'll rotate them over the course of the week, but they won't offer five at the same time so that people aren't tempted to just get a bunch of everything. And so even in a buffet situation, there are ways of guiding people to healthier choices. What you call the names of the different food products, you know, influences sort of how desirable they will be as we, we mentioned before. taste all five. And when I see two things that look really nice, I just want to taste them both. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And so we need to work with psychology. We can't, we can't work against it. We can't expect people to be, you know, um, good about, you know, only trying one thing when they can easily have two. That's very well said. So we've talked a lot, you know, on a global level, but it, it's got to start on an individual level. And to some degree, I do think structure makes things a lot easier. If we can put the right structure around the way we make our choices that can make us help us make better choices. But the psychology, you know, the lifestyle choices that we make, there are mental choices that we make about what we eat. What advice do you have for those on, that are listening or thinking, well, gee, what can I do different? Well, there are definitely a lot of, you know, behavioral changes that we can do. You know, when we're cooking, we're going to, you know, change the types of food we eat. We're going to change the pace of the eating. You know, that's not an option for everybody. But, you know, there are many people who don't know how to prepare food. And so, you know, we need to make sure that people have this, the skills they need in order to do it. And, you know, the last year with COVID, has encouraged many people to learn more of those skills or refresh those skills. And so that's a good thing. Hopefully that will be habits that continue, um, you know, as we come out of the, the pandemic. And, you know, again, the 
the shopping habits, you know, it's making sure you have that list, making sure that you're to the extent possible that you're not going to the grocery store, you know, when you're mentally or fatigued, um, that you're thinking about where food is in your house that, you know, put the things that are snacks, you know, away so that they're not visible. They're not tempting you all of the time. Um, thinking about the plates that you eat, you know, the plate size I talked about, but, you know, the more vegetables you have on your plate, the less room there will be for, you know, the protein. And, you know, you don't have to have that huge stack of, um, you know, rice maybe, or, you know, so much pasta. And you can always go back for seconds. And so, you know, maybe, you know, I, I tend to use a smaller bowl for lunch and a bigger bowl for dinner. And, you know, I seldom finish that smaller bowl for lunch and think, you know, I need to go back for a second serving. You know, it's like I'm just fine. And so there are lots of nudges that we can do to you know, just encourage those healthier outcomes. You know, if you ha have the ability to have two or three vegetables, you know, again, that's going to fill up your plate with more healthy food options. You know, we all know that we should be eating five servings of fruits and vegetables, but 90 percent of people are not doing it. Um, you know, it's hard. Um, but once you get into the habit, you know, that's the great thing about habits is that once you get into a good habit, it's just as likely to, you know, continue because of momentum as the bad habits we have today. And you make a good point. And, and I think, you know, when you can plan ahead, that's when I plan ahead, I make much better food choices. <laughs> when I'm unprepared, I'm driving home, you know, I'm leaving the office, I'm driving home, I'm hungry, hunger strikes, and I have no idea what I'm going to cook. It makes me want to grab something fast, you know, or just grab whatever's in there. And it, you know, I do try to keep healthy snacks on hand, um, and I do bring my lunch sometimes, but I find when I can plan ahead, I am in much better control. Yeah, no, absolutely. And for some people, you know, that means planning ahead for what you're going to do for dinner. But for others, it means actually doing food prep on the weekend so that, you know, it's just easier you know, during the week. You know, it, it takes time to chop vegetables. And, you know, if you can chop the, the broccoli for a week and, you know, uh, put it in separate packages or things like that, then, you know, whatever works for you is the right thing to do. And, you know, we just all have different lifestyles and we need to choose those nudges that work within our, the lifestyle we have as we nudge ourselves towards better ones. I think you're right. And, and, you know, depression and boredom are two common issues that have been linked to the urge to overeat. And boredom, I, when I'm bored, I am da danger, danger. <laughs> I'm, and I think that, you know, there are things that you can do that can help. Um, when you get bored, get up and go take a walk or, you know, distract yourself, refocus your energy, spend some time thinking about what, what triggers you to overeat. Um, and because I think the more that you understand about yourself, the more that you can control yourself. No, I'm, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that we stress about the most today, though, is food itself. You know, we're... One of the problems with the, the current diet industry is that it actually encourages, encourages us to be thinking about the food we eat every second of every day. And, you know, if you're counting calories, then you're obsessing over the food you eat. You know, nobody was counting calories in 1960. Nobody was on a diet in 1960. 
you know, it was really the environment that was supporting those choices, not just our own personal efforts, because none of us are strong enough to be perfect all the time. And it's just so much easier if, you know, our family, our friends, our food environment, our house, our dishes, everything is like nudging us towards a better choice. And in the book, I talk about, you know, good habits are contagious, just like bad habits. And so if you can adopt some better habits, you will actually be sharing those habits, you know, indirectly with all of the people around you. So hopefully that'll also encourage people to think about, you know, you know, maybe they don't have to do it, but if they do adopt these strategies, they'll make it easier for other people to do it who might have a greater need for them. Well, and you make a good point, and that makes, you know, it makes me think of who you eat with. If you know you have friends that want to go to the pizza buffet and, you know, you know that they want to go and overindulge in pizza, maybe you you only go once every third time they ask you. But who you eat with can influence what you eat as well. Right. No, absolutely. And uh, I, I talk a little bit about, you know, some of that behavior in the, the book itself. And, you know, it, it's interesting, again, all the psychology. Uh, one of the things I talk about is if you go to a restaurant and people go around the table and you're sort of the last person, what most people do, if somebody like chooses the thing you were thinking about ordering, a lot of people won't choose that item even though, you know, if somebody else gets the ribs, there's no reason you shouldn't get the ribs. But many of us will avoid that choice because somebody else has already taken it. And what research shows is that we actually end up enjoying our meal less because we're so obsessed about like what other people are doing and how they might think about us choosing the thing they chose. And so, you know, we really obsess way too much about food instead of just focusing on our own sort of personal mental well-being and health and enjoyment. That's a good point. I hadn't, that's something I really hadn't thought about. You know, we've talked about a lot of things on the show today. And I think what I'd like to do in the few minutes that we have left, what are the, the really, the four or five most important takeaways that you want people to have? Well, the first is to recognize that, you know, obesity and overeating is a really serious issue and that it's caught. The second is that it's caused by both our brains and our environment driving us to make bad decisions, but that it's also possible to go back and recreate a food environment that actually delivers healthy outcomes and actually is supportive of us in a way that it's working against us today. And that hopefully everybody will be uh, maybe a little bit excited about what can be done to reshape their local food environment, but also to engage with the broader community to help all of us work together in order to create a food environment that is making us all healthier every single day. Well, would you think it would be acceptable next time you're in a restaurant to ask for a smaller glass for your soda? Well, I'm sure they'd be delighted to offer a smaller glass. Um, you know, I encourage people to think about, you know, asking for that to-go bag before you go. You know, that's where I think it starts to get a little bit provocative. Um, but if enough people do it, that's how norms are created. You know, it just becomes, you know, acceptable that they serve you half a portion. 
let's get that one started. I think that's a great idea. But I think my best takeaway is the size of your dinner plate. When you were talking about that, I thought about I found some paper plates in my pantry and one, you know, left from different occasions. One one stack was huge and one stack they were pretty small. And when you were talking about the size of the dinner plate, I thought, yeah, I need to use those small ones. I need to throw those huge ones away. I think that's a great idea. And nobody will notice. And, you know, you won't even need to buy as much food because people will just naturally consume less. (laughs) I mean, it sounds so simple, but I love simplicity. (laughs) That when it's so simple, it works. It absolutely works. Simplicity is the only thing that works every day. (laughs) I agree with you on that. Well, I think that kind of go back up to the global level. What what are your hopes and and what's in your hopes and your dreams for for us as we move into the future? Well, I, I am hopeful that more and more organizations will understand the potential of behavioral science to scale ideas. And the World Health Organization actually last year created a behavioral science uh, working group to try to begin to think about these things. So, so these are really an idea whose time has come and we will get there eventually, but the sooner we can begin to make these changes, the better for all of us. And so it can happen at our community scale, it can happen at our county or state level, and it can also happen, and it needs to happen, you know, at the federal or state uh, national level as well. And so we need to be pushing in all of those places at the same time because it's all part of our food environment. Where do you anticipate the most resistance? Oh, you know, I think that, you know, some some people prefer to have the government tell us what to do instead of finding ways of working with industry. And, you know, my view is we can move more quickly if industry thinks it's in their interest as well. You know, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have, you know, policies and uh, enforce it. But um, I would just encourage people to be open to the idea that the food, the people that are working in the food system um, can be part of the solution, you know, even if they're part of the problem today. I like that. Well, if people want to learn more about you or if there's some listeners out there thinking, I need to rethink how I offer food to my employees, how would they find you? Well, they can certainly find the book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Bookstore and any place you would normally find a book. Um, On LinkedIn is a great place to find me. I have a broad network and people are free to connect to me there. I'm very active on Twitter, getting going on Instagram so I can connect with more uh, dietitians and nutritionists who are there. And so, and then my website, futurityfood.com is also a place, Um, but people should feel free to to reach out to me directly. I'd love to have conversations about how we can all work better to create a sustainable and nutritious future for all. Well, I think that, you know, that's great. You're certainly very available. And when people know that you, they enjoy, you enjoy being reached out to it, it kind of makes them feel it's okay, you know, do it. And I think sometimes we think, oh, I don't want to bother somebody. So, Jack, I just have to thank you so much for your time today and helping me look at food a, a little bit differently. And, you know, it's not just now we have plant-based proteins. It's 
it's a whole new world and, and whole new technology for food. I appreciate everything you've shared with us, and I hope to learn more from you as time goes on. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio.